This is They Create Worlds, episode 203, Alone in the Dark. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. I thought I was here with Alex. It just so dark in here. I seem to be alone in this darkness. I'm walking around silently. Where's my candle? I don't have a candle. Oh, dear. It's the glue. The glue is coming for me. <laughs> That's a lie, Jeffrey. You have like five cats. You're never alone. Oh, hi, Ember. Oh, wait, this is Julian. <laughs> hi, Julian. <laughs> Yeah, Julian. Yes, see? See? Alex can see the Julian. It's I, right I here. can. I could not see any cats when I made that statement, but I felt fairly comfortable in staking out that claim anyway. And I was proven correct. But yes, Jeffrey is feeling all alone because today we are talking about solitude in the darkness. Though, in truth, there is very little darkness. Plenty of alone, not so much darkness. But yes, it is the classic 1992 survival horror game, really the progenitor of the entire genre, Alone in the Dark, from our good friends at Infogrom. The sad thing is, I don't think I've actually ever played the game. I've played it a little, not a lot, and well after its heyday. I didn't play it back in 1992. It is a product of its time. It's one of these games where, if you look at footage today, uh, which of course we'll have copious amounts of in the show notes, you would probably wonder what all the fuss was about. But in the context of its times, it was truly mind-blowing for reasons that I won't get into right now, because that's the whole episode. For a game that uh, is supposed to be about darkness... It does look very bright and lacks shadows. <laughs> yes, yes, there is one room that has darkness, at least one. We'll see that this is a result of the name in some ways coming before the game in the uh, complicated creation process. Revised name, Alone in the Very Bright Rooms. Hmm, not sure that would sell. Obviously, we have to fill out a whole episode on this, so where do we want to start? What are the influences on this? Who made it? Well, we know Infogram <laughs> made it. Who were the sub-people at Infogram who made this thing? And what were they doing when they thought, you know, I want to make a really interesting 3D light explored room game involving polygons. So many poorly drawn polygons by today's standards. Well, not so much poorly drawn as too few to draw anything with. But, uh, Jeffrey, did you just imply that we might have a hard time filling an entire episode? No. Because <laughs> that doesn't seem very on brand for us. No, we've got lots to talk about. This is a truly seminal game. We included it in our top 20 when we did our top 100 most influential games way back in the day. I think the best place to start is with the main mover and shaker of this game, a Frenchman by the name of Frédéric Reynal. Frédéric was a programming fiend. He was self-taught. 
He was obsessed, and he was mad for everything computers. He came by it quite honestly. His father, when he was a kid, owned a computer shop slash video rental store. He dealt in both. These dual influences are the dual influences that basically brought what became Alone in the Dark into being. His first computer was a ZX81, the British computer. He got one in about 1982. He would hang out in his father's store. He would help out a little in the store, and he would program, program, program. He eventually graduated to an Amiga. He may have had some other computers in between. It wouldn't surprise me. But at some point, we know he graduated to an Amiga. He spent so much time staring at his Amiga, programming on it, playing games on it, etc., that one day his whole world went into black and white. And I don't mean that he suddenly had some kind of moral epiphany where he decided that there were no gray issues left in the world, that everything was right and wrong. No, I mean his vision literally went black and white. He temporarily lost the ability to see color. That seems rather extreme and worrying. Yes, it it went away. It was not a permanent condition went away after about a day or so, but it had something to do with how he was staring at the screen so long that something happened. I'm not a doctor. Don't even pretend to be one on TV, but yes. (laughs) I can pretend to be one, because I took enough (laughs) medical classes to do that. That's true. Normally, how we see is actually upside down, and our brains actually flip the image around. They have glasses that you can put on, and they've done this with experiments, where it flips the image again so that everything's upside down. It's really disorienting that way, but eventually they have found that your brain goes, oh, we just need to fix this, and then it just flips the image around again with the flipped glasses, Hmm. which is actually really cool. So the only thing I could theorize is the brain was like, oh, we're only ever seeing black and white, so obviously everything must be in black and white. Let's just remove this color thing and reduce processing power. I don't know. I mean, the Amiga's in color. I don't know what happened, but the point is he was a very obsessive programmer. But that's not the only thing he did. As a typical nerd of the day, he was also very into Dungeons & Dragons, Satan's Game. Also, because his father owned a a video rental store, he was very into movies, and specifically horror movies. I like horror movies. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Some of his favorites were the movies of the 1970s. He was a huge George Romero aficionado, and particularly uh, Dawn of the Dead, the movie that really cemented the zombie genre. Obviously, it's not Romero's first movie with zombies. That's Night of the Living Dead. But Dawn of the Dead is the one that really cemented the popularity of all of that. He was also a fan of the classic The Amityville Horror, supposed to be based on a true story, uh, sure about an evil house that a family is trapped in and and has to escape. Zombies, houses that you have to escape. This is starting to sound familiar to people who have played Alone in the Dark before. It should have been a mall. He was an especial fan of giallo cinema, uh, particularly the works of uh, Dario Argento. Are you familiar with giallo, Jeffrey? I am not. Giallo is an Italian form of horror, Basically, the slasher movie came out of Giallo. That was the main influence on the American slasher movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th and all of that. 
It started as a literary genre back in the 1930s in Italy, and it basically combined the suspense of a thriller or detective story with more overtly horror elements like intense violence or gore, sometimes supernatural elements, oftentimes psychological and in some cases even quite psychedelic expressions of horror, mental stuff. There's also often a strong vein of sexuality in it as well, and kind of this intermingling of extreme violence, extreme gore, and sexuality. The sexuality is certainly both an element that comes out of thrillers and straight horror. So it was kind of this new, bloody, suspenseful, vicious amalgam. Dario Argento is probably considered the greatest practitioner of this in cinema. It started in literature, then it moved to film as some of these early Giallo books were adapted. One of the early books was called Giallo, which is partially where the name came from. The person that's considered the uh, father of the Giallo movie is a director named Mario Bava, who was active in uh, starting in the 1960s. However, it was Dario Argento in the 1970s who truly kind of perfected the form, starting with his so-called animal trilogy that began with the bird with the crystal plumage in 1970. Then, of course, his most famous and most impactful work was Suspiria from 1977. Argento was especially fascinated with the interplay of sex and violence, so much so that, you know, you never know for sure, but he probably has a fetish in that direction. It's not just because he did works uh, of this type, because that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but he always insisted that it would be his hands that were on camera if a woman was being strangled or something. He would do shots with, like, just hands reaching out and whatnot, and, and he always insisted on using his own. So, um, <laughs> a psychologist could probably have a field day, but I don't want to get too distracted by that. The thing that made Argento really special is that he was also a great admirer of that master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. Argento was very concerned with the way the camera and the movement of the camera and the way you established your shots and cut between your shots would create an element of suspense, especially when paired with especially suspenseful music. This is stuff that he largely got from Hitchcock, though just like other Giallo was very much about taking suspense thrillers and adding a huge dose of horror to it. So was Argento taking some of the techniques of Hitchcock, who of course dabbled in horror as well. I mean, his movies like Psycho and The Birds were certainly horror movies, but Argento moved them in a much, much bloodier direction. I mean, the Psycho shower scene was considered very shocking, incredibly shocking, when that movie premiered in 1960, and certainly that scene was bloody and violent by the standards of that time. But the stuff Dario Argento was doing in the 1970s took that to a whole nother level. Why am I focusing so much on this? Well, it'll take us a bit to get there, but as we'll see, this entire idea of combining suspenseful camera angles and suspenseful music and the constant threat of violence is going to be a big part of what makes Alone in the Dark what it was. 
probably Argento was the biggest influence on Alone in the Dark. He took other stuff. I mean, there's zombies in it. He was fascinated by zombies. He took that from George Romero's work. Also, this idea that you are trapped and have to survive. A lot of 1970s horror focused on that kind of scenario. Amityville Horror, which we talked about, is about being trapped within an evil house. Dawn of the Dead is all about how a group of strangers end up trapped at the beginning of a zombie apocalypse in a shopping mall and have to just get through it, just have to survive and hopefully ultimately escape. Just skipping around when you're looking at footage of the game, you see it is at a lot of skewed camera angles, a lot of those fixed Mm -hmm. perspectives that are off-kilter, and that is used in cinematography in order to convey to the audience that something is wrong. If you ever notice that whenever someone's on drugs or someone's in a parallel universe or something weird is going on, like on a weird spaceship or something, the camera angle shifts 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 45 degrees, based on how crazy things are going. You're not consciously aware of it, but your brain picks up on these subtle clues to go, hey, something isn't quite right here. I should feel unnerved that something Mm -hmm. is bad, something is wrong, something is off. This situation is dangerous for the person that I'm caring about. Exactly. Dario Argento, in particular, was a great proponent of using those kind of camera tricks. The other couple of things about Argento that are particularly relevant here is that Argento's horror almost always focuses on an innocent outsider who ends up witnessing something or becoming entangled in something and then has to solve a mystery that they had never planned to be a part of in the first place. His male characters, when he has male protagonists, tend to be investigators of some kind who witness something and then have to unravel it, while his female characters, which again tends to be tied up very much in violence and sexuality and gore and the intermixing of these concepts, tend to be characters that have to go through, that go through rather, a lot of psychological torment. There's a lot of psychological stuff in his movies in addition to the extreme violence. The other thing about Argento is that in his movies, danger can come at almost any time. This is again part of the whole Alfred Hitchcock suspense thing. Part of a good suspense thriller is you are constantly unsettled and never quite know when the action may happen. So rather than kind of traditional horror where there's a lot of things that go bump in the night and there are specific places and specific times that feel more dangerous, Dario Argento really concentrates on horror being able to happen in the most ordinary of locations at the most ordinary times of day as a way of being further unsettling. Again, we're going to come back to all of these concepts when we actually start talking about Alone in the Dark in detail. Our friend Reynal, to get back to the narrative here, grew up a big programmer, big programming fan, a big game fan, both computer games and Dungeons and & Dragons, and a big fan of horror movies. He went off to college, graduated in 1986, and came back to work for his father at the store full-time, taking care of servicing and repairs of computers for the shop. 
While he's doing this, of course, he's continuing to program on his Amiga and ends up in 1988 co-authoring a game with another individual by the name of Christophe Lacaz called Popcorn, which very fittingly, considering our two episodes previous to this, was a breakout clone. <laughs> That's right. Of course, Arkanoid is very recent in 1988. I'm sure, even though I don't know this entirely for sure, that it was probably Arkanoid rather than Breakout itself that spurred the desire to do this. They create this game called Popcorn for the PC, just a freeware game. CGA graphics. But it was considered a lot better than Arkanoid, because remember, Arkanoid is very popular at this time. There was a PC port of Arkanoid, and that was considered somewhat substandard, and this game Popcorn was considered a far better port of Arkanoid, essentially, than Arkanoid itself was, due to the skill of the programmers involved. Now, it just so happens that right when this game was being released, France does have compulsory military service. All males must do a term of service in the military when they're uh, young men. So right as this game was being released and is starting to take the PC world by storm, particularly in France, he is out of commission for the next year or so as he is completing his compulsory military service. By the time he gets out in 1989, he is suddenly one of the most in-demand programmers in the country. Because everyone has now seen Popcorn, everyone has been blown away by Popcorn, and the French computer game companies all very much want to hire him. One person who particularly noticed him was a developer by the name of Laurent Salmeron, who had just finished creating the very successful game Draken for Infogram. Salmeron went to the head of Infogram, Bruno Bonnell, and if you want more information on him, I remind you that we did do a full examination, in two parts, I think, of Infogram, the French company that would later become Atari. Long, long ago, and those episodes are still worth a listen. Fascinating character, Mr. Bonnell. Salmeron went to Bonnell and said, this guy is amazing, you absolutely have to bring him on board, and... Because his most recent game had been so successful, Salmeron had a lot of pull, so was like, sure, we'll hire him on your say-so. So in about August or so of 1989, Frédéric Reynal, all of 23 years old at this time, was hired by Infogram. His first game, which I don't really know anything about because it was never released, never really rent anywhere, I think marketing didn't really understand it very well. But as he was working on that, he became absolutely blown away by another game that was submitted by an outside contractor called Alpha Waves. I do want to take a brief second to discuss Alpha Waves because without Alpha Waves, I can confidently say there is no Alone in the Dark. Alpha Waves was developed for the Atari ST computer by an individual, a Frenchman again, of course, by the name of Christophe de Dinschen. 
he actually did this game because he was a big game player himself, and he became fascinated by the Argonaut software game Star Glider 2. Star Glider 2 was one of the very first computer games that created 3D graphics using filled polygons instead of wireframe graphics. It was a shooter, the follow-up to a very popular game called Star Glider, obviously. Argonaut, the creators of it, would go on to much fame as the creators of the FX chip and the programmers of Star Fox. As we can see here, their use of polygonal graphics goes back way further than that. I believe we've talked before how polygons really first got onto computers in any kind of meaningful way through flight simulators and shooters of this kind. The reason for that quite simply being that, A, the people that played these games tended to be more concerned with the realism than the speed of the action, so they didn't care if the polygon rendering caused the games to become much, much slower. We don't care about five frames per second. Exactly. Or even in some cases, one frame per second, I think. That's not Starglider 2, but I think sometimes they'll even accept one or two frames per second so long as it feels smooth and accurate. I mean, as smooth as, you know, two FPS can be. I'm not saying it's very smooth. The other thing is that since most of what's going on is in the sky, you don't have to really worry about rendering your landscape, which frees up a lot of processing power to do the polygons on your planes, spaceships, etc. Because you've just got blue sky or open sky for most of it, and even if you have ground targets, you basically put as little detail into anything on the ground as possible to focus on the things flying around in the air. Now, having said that, Starglider moved at what was at the time a very, very crisp 10 to 15 FPS. That was considered silky smooth at the time. I know those of us who live in the 30, 60 FPS days where some people go crazy and overclock and even go up to 120, 240 FPS, that 10 to 15 as silky smooth may seem quaint, but believe me, that was incredible for that time. Now, part of the reason Jezson and his Argonaut Software were able to create a game that smooth was because they were very good programmers. But part of it also was that the game, and of course we'll put it in the show notes, the action portion of the game where the polygons are rendered takes up a very small portion of the screen relative to the entire screen. And they were very careful to make sure that there were not that many polygonal objects on the screen at any one time. So by using those kind of tricks, they were able to get this game silky smooth despite the use of filled polygons. Starglider 2 certainly does that thing where they put all the instrumentation is easily a third, even up to a half of the screen, and your window is relatively small. You got a bevel around the entire thing, you got some mm. instrumentation along the top, you got your instrumentation on the bottom. Your field of view is very, very limited. Absolutely, and again, by design to get it fast. Again, it was very impressive for the time, and Christoph was just obsessed with how he was able to do that. And being a programmer himself, of course, he also saw it as a challenge. So he decided that he wanted to make a game using filled polygons for the graphics that had more objects on the screen at the same time and took up a greater percentage of the screen for the playable area. 
while still maintaining the silky smoothness that had so impressed him about Starglider 2. He started out, because of course he'd never worked with polygons before, he just started out with very basic experimentation. He created a cubic space, by which I mean it was a relatively small contained space in the shape of a cube, or perhaps of a rectangular prism. It might have been taller than it was wider, but basically a cube. Then he put other cubes just floating around in this space. And then he had his spaceship, or whatever it was, that he could fly around this space. And this was just testing things out at this point. He was thinking of doing a flight game, which is not surprising. Starglider 2 was a flight game, and virtually every game that had used polygons had been a flight game up to this point. Not quite all of them, of course, but that was the most common type of game to be using these polygonal graphics in these early days. So he's flying this ship around, and of course the walls of his cube are meant to be boundaries. So when his ship would hit one of the walls of this constrained space, it would bounce off of the wall. And he was like, oh, that's kind of neat. So his next step was to take those cubes that he just had floating around within his space and make it so that his controlled character ship, whatever it was, would also bounce off of those cubes. Then he was like, oh, that's really fun. So that's when he decided rather than making a flying game, he would make a platforming game in which he would have a character that he basically modeled off of a smurf that would bounce around all of these cubes that would have to move around this small self-contained world by bouncing off of all of these cubes. Basically the first 3D platform game. In fact, he even thought that it might work for a smurf's license. I presume he saw his little character I already said was based on a Smurf. I presume, though I don't know this for certain, that he probably saw the cubes as maybe being mushrooms or some such that make up the Smurf village and, you know, just bounce around all over the place. He took the game to Infogram, whom he had had dealings with before. Infogram was like, yeah, this is great. We'll take it from you. And he was like, oh, no, 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 because he'd been burned by Infogram before. Bruno Bonell never paid anyone he could get away with not paying. He said, no, we're doing this for royalties. I'm not just giving this to you. We're doing a royalty deal. He had worked for Infogram before, but now he had joined Infogram. They brought it to him. He was like, that's great. We'll definitely publish that. He was like, no, no. I created this on my own before I joined Infogram. This is not your property. We are doing a royalty deal if we publish this. So they did their negotiations, and he got himself a royalty. 17%, which is actually a little low, because again, Bruno Bonell never paid anyone he could get away with not paying. The game was published. Again, it's truly remarkable for the time, though again, as with many of these early experiments, it's definitely something that you kind of had to be there, because if, if you look at it today, to a degree, I'm sure you would wonder uh, what all the fuss was about. Well, you just have this pyramid, more or less. Bouncing around on square platforms, trying to get to another square platform. Exactly. But it played smoothly. The physics were solid. Again, interacting in this kind of 3D space was just something that had never been seen before. This is not going to be something for everybody. It's not like it was one of the biggest hits to ever hit gaming. I mean, it wasn't Mario 64 in terms of popularity, but for a certain gamer excited by those gameplay possibilities, this was truly outstanding. One person who was completely enchanted by it was Mr. Frédéric Reynal. 
He was so enchanted with it that he asked for the opportunity to port the game to the PC, which was his platform of choice. I said he had an Amiga earlier. Now that I look more, I'm not sure if he did or not, but he definitely had an Amstrad PC, which uh, Amstrad being a British computer maker. So PC was his platform of choice, and he thought this would be a great thing to port over. Originally, management was actually against this because the game was not created in a high-level language. It was created in assembly, which, of course, you'd have to for a 3D game in those days because you need every last bit of processing power you can get just to get that thing to render, and you don't want to waste time on the computer having to interpret a high-level compiled language. Infogrom had a policy of not doing ports between systems of games that are done in machine language, because at that point, I mean, I call it a port because that's the common term that's used in the industry, but at that point, it's not really a port, because you're basically having to recreate the game from scratch on a different computer. Christoph was a very disciplined coder, a very organized coder, and he was one of those good people that copiously commented on his code. Yay! (laughs) So Raynal argued that the code was elegant enough and uh, well-commented enough that it wouldn't be a big deal. He got the okay, and he actually ported the game over to the PC. We've already talked about how Raynal can get a little obsessive. Something about vision. And he became obsessed with polygons and obsessed with this cubic world that had been created by Kristoff. He was resolved that he wanted to create a game using very similar kind of graphics and whatnot, but more in the genres that he liked. Raynal was a big fan of action games, but even more than that, he was a huge fan of adventure games. He loved games that involved puzzle solving. Of course, as we said, he loved the horror movies of the 1970s, particularly these movies that trapped an innocent, unwitting individual in a space and forced them to survive the ordeal and somehow escape. Combining his love of Romero and zombie films and Amity Horror and, you know, Dangerous Houses and all of this other stuff, he decided to make an adventure game focused around escaping a house infested with zombies, primarily through the use of puzzle solving, but also with a little bit of action thrown in. I know this game. It's Resident Evil. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Resident Evil is, is, is great and all, but uh, Mikami himself has been very quick to admit this. He's never tried to hide it. It takes a lot from Alone in the Dark. It partially took from Alone in the Dark, and it also partially took from the same influences, because Mikami was also a big George Romero fan. I mean, George Romero invented the zombie as we think of it. The real traditional folklore zombie is an idea from the voodoo religion of these kind of things that can be created by uh, voodoo priests as these kind of shambling, obedient servants. The zombie that we think of, brains, 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 shoot him in the head, oh my god, they're coming right for us, that is all George Romero, baby. They're coming for you, Barbara. (laughs) Exactly. 
Yeah, so he decided that he wanted to make a game like that, and he started playing around with creating his own 3D polygonal development system tools program that he called 3Plan. Because at this time, everything was in such infancy, there were very few programs that allowed you to develop polygonal 3D graphics. Game programmers were primarily still working in deluxe paint, which was basically the Photoshop of its day. There were some advanced tools that were starting to be developed, particularly in the United States, but Raynal, just being at this relatively small and insignificant at the time French company in Lyon, was not familiar with any of that. He was not aware of any 3D tools, so he just started building his own. So he created a program that he called 3Plan, and it was all based around these cubes from Alpha Waves. Because what he did in this program is you could create a character inside of a cube, the cube being kind of the hitbox of the character. Like the cube in Alpha Waves, you had this geometric shape that was enclosing your character, except instead of being a big playfield, it's just a little cube within which you can build a polygonal object. Then he also made it so that you could animate the character by having different points of articulation on your polygonal object that you've created that you could manipulate with the mouse and click and reposition these individual points individually to create a frame of animation, and then you could move them to create another frame, etc., and string them all together so you could create an actual 3D animated character out of polygons, which Alpha Waves did not do. It had a 3D character, but like you said, that character was basically a pyramid. He was not animated. He was able to create characters that could walk and run and move their arms, etc., within this three-plan program. Then he created another tool that would allow him to build a pseudo-3D environment for these characters to interact in. Because one thing that was still very true in this time period, and, and goes back to the same reason why flight simulators tended to be the first games to use polygons, is that computers were powerful enough now that you could put a few animated characters on there so long as you kept their polygon counts somewhere between 50 and, let's say, 200. But they certainly weren't powerful enough that you could do that and also render a fully 3D environment out of polygons. So he came up with a very clever and incredibly influential technique to get around this. He created a program in which you could create a wireframe, a three-dimensional wireframe of a space. So that you could have pillars or stairs or walls or other objects that are just represented by wireframes but have the collision detection. So that if you're moving a 3D character around, those objects from the point of view of your 3D character are solid objects. Then what you could do is you could take a screenshot of this wireframe, import it into another program like, say, Deluxe Paint and then put a two-dimensional image, like a photograph or a bitmap, on top of this wireframe, draw it on top of this wireframe, and then re-import that into his scene program, that's what he called it, and map 
the parts of the bitmap to the parts of the wireframe in order to create a three-dimensional space that is actually rendered using almost entirely two-dimensional assets. Just like Final Fantasy VII. Yes, or Resident Evil. Again, that's not a coincidence. This is one of the most influential things to come out of this, because the PlayStation, even though it was technically capable of doing polygons, had a real bottleneck between the video processor and the memory that made it very challenging, not impossible, but very challenging to actually do fully 3D games on the system. When people like Mikami at Capcom or uh, Sakaguchi and Kitasi, Yoshinori Kitasi at Square, were looking at how to create these worlds they wanted to create in three dimensions, they looked to Alone in the Dark as a reference point. I mean, like I said, Mikami has never made any secret of his love of Alone in the Dark. And Katasi, who was the director of uh, Final Fantasy VII under Sakaguchi, has also said in interviews that Alone in the Dark was one of the games that they looked to when they were trying to figure out how to do 3D on the PlayStation. So even though Alone in the Dark was originally a PC game, the technique that it used was incredibly influential in realizing some of the biggest hits on the PlayStation. Just so incredibly influential. Now, at first, his plan had been to use photographs. If you've listened to our seventh guest episode, it's very similar to that game, where what they were going to do for the backgrounds is take pictures and then scan those pictures in and then apply those pictures to the backgrounds in order to create the environments for the game. Well, he tried that, but it didn't work right at all. Texture mapping is hard. Exactly. Everything was stretched and distorted and everything. So he knew pictures wouldn't work, but then he decided that he would do bitmaps instead, created in deluxe paint. Old-fashioned pixel drawing kind of stuff like all the 2D games used. That's kind of the tech side of this. So how do we get from there to Alone in the Dark? It's a little bit unclear exactly what the timeline is here. But basically what happened is, as Reynal was creating his tools, he shared his work in progress with an individual at the company named uh, Didier Chomfray, who he was very friendly with, who was an artist. He'd actually been a surveyor of all things, a surveyor in training, rather, an associate surveyor. He had spent several years surveying in the mountains. Then he was told his next assignment was going to be surveying in the sewers. He figured that was a little less fun than surveying the mountains. So uh, he had always been interested in art. He had a bit of a portfolio, so he quit and went looking for an art job and was hired by Infogram in 1987. So he showed kind of what he was doing to Chamfray, because they were friends, kind of told him a little bit about this concept of the game that he was looking to make. Chamfray made this beautiful black and white piece of art showing a man holding up a lantern that was kind of in front of this house, kind of holding back the darkness kind of thing. So that's kind of how Reynal started moving in that kind of direction. Now, at the same time, and this is the part where the timeline's a little unclear, I don't know exactly when or how this intersects, but at some point in here, Bruno Bonnell, the head of the company, 
was brainstorming ideas for new games with his head of uh, development, Rick Motet, and came up with this concept of a game that he called In the Dark, which was basically that your character is in this pitch black space that he has to escape from. He has exactly three matches on him. Using just those three matches to briefly illuminate the space and then kind of remembering what you see and whatnot, you have to navigate yourself out of this space and escape. So this concept was in the dark. At some point, Reynaud got wind of this idea of Bonell's and thought that the work he was doing and the thing that he was starting to work on would be absolutely perfect for this concept. He went to Bonell and pitched using his new 3D system to create this in-the-dark game. Well, you know how I said that Bonell never paid anyone uh, he could get away with not paying. He also didn't like paying for development that he felt he didn't have to uh, pay for. Much of what Infogrom was doing at this time were really budget games. We talked about this in our Infogrom episodes. A lot of the work that they were doing at this time was doing adaptations of Belgian comics from the brand Bond Dessinée. Things like Les Tourniques Bleus, which they created north and south around, Asterisk, Tintin, stuff like that. Most of these were pretty cheap games to churn out, and they had a reliable license, and that was kind of their business. They had tried to move into edutainment and had failed. They were in a bit of a financial pickle at this time. So their development in general wasn't very ambitious. Part of the reason I think Bonell was drawn to this idea is that a game that mostly takes place in pitch blackness is probably a lot cheaper and easier to produce. So he was not thinking of a 3D game or a polygon game for this. This just seemed too out there for the concept that he was looking for. So he said, no, go do our port of SimCity instead because they released SimCity in Europe. We talk about that in our Infogram episode as well. Reynal, as his day job, starts doing the SimCity port, but he cannot give up on this idea of this in-the-dark game and his action-adventure horror game and his polygonal system. So he keeps working on it on the side. I don't know how all of these things intersect with each other, whether he showed it to Sean Frey before or after, Bonell came up with In the Dark, or when exactly his tools were done in relation to everything. That part of the timeline is very fuzzy. But these are the ideas that come together to form the basis of creating Alone in the Dark. He has his tools. He has his 3D graphics and animation program, 3Plan. He has his scene, or three-scene, or whatever he called it, texture mapping program that allowed him to create wireframes, export those wireframes, draw over them with pixels, and then import it back in and match those pixels to the wireframe to create these pseudo-3D environments. Once he realizes that he can't use photos for the environments, he needs art for his setting, and uh, he is not an artist. As a way of soliciting ideas, he decides to hold an informal competition amongst Infogrom's four artists at the time to create backgrounds using his new system. Of the four, only two take him up on the offer. He's not their boss. He can't order them to do anything. One of the two drew up something very Prince of Persia-ish, 
which was not in any way the vibe he was going for. The other was a young woman by the name of Yale Baraz, who actually had professional art training at an art school, and who drew a beautiful and striking background of a room in, like, a mansion. He was very enamored with the room. He was very enamored with the woman. Spoiler alert, they get married. Baraz was near the end of her contract with the company. She was on a contract and wanted to stay on to be able to create games, which had motivated her to do this in the first place. So she came on board and started drawing backgrounds for this game. We do know, according to Reynal and his talk that he gave at the GDC as a classic game postmortem back in 2012, we do know that by September 1991, they had a proof of concept. At this point, it was basically just four people working on it. It was Reynal who had the vision, Didier Chanfray was still around and was focusing on creating the three-dimensional objects and characters. We had Baraz, who was doing the pixel art, the bitmap art, doing the backgrounds. And there was one additional programmer, Franck de Girolami, who had been an intern at Infogram and kind of had nothing to do. So Reynal was able to kind of grab a hold of him, recruit him, and he helped with some secondary programming tasks as well as getting some of the tools done. So there was this group of four that were basically working informally on this project. And by September 1991, they had a proof of concept in place, which was basically just a room, a character that could run around in it. And they may have also by now had their first monster, which could most generously be described as a zombie chicken. It wasn't meant to be a chicken, but it was a bird of some kind, and it definitely looked like a chicken. When they showed this demo, and Bonell and uh, the head of production, Mote, could actually see what this would look like, have some conception on it, they were absolutely blown away by it and gave him permission to actually start doing this as an official project. They allowed him to do In the Dark, which at some point gained the name Alone in the Dark. So development began with these individuals, as well as a part-time uh, tabletop gamer by the name of Franck Manzetti. He was local to Lyon. He was in tabletop. He did some stuff part-time for Infogram, who was brought in to help kind of create a story and a flow to the game. Because right now, they don't have that. They have these concepts, but they don't have a mansion. They don't have a story. They don't have any of this stuff. They have zombies. They have zombie chickens. They have a protagonist that can run around, and they have a room, and they have some tools that can create more rooms and more zombie chickens. But now it's an official project, so they get to work on this, and it doesn't go well. It's one thing to get the tech basically working and to kind of figure out what the camera angle should be. It took a long time to even figure that stuff out, because... One thing I didn't mention before, but is, is relevant now, is that the drawback of this pseudo 3D rendering, where you have a 3D wireframe with a 2D bitmap on top of it, is you cannot have an, an independent camera. Because you don't really have a 3D space, you have a 2D image that is masquerading as a 3D space. So you can't just rotate around your camera like you do in a modern 3D game. 
you have to have a fixed camera angle. And if you move off the screen, you're basically moving to another static screen at a different camera angle. So it's really challenging just to figure out where the cam, the fixed camera should be, how low or high it should be, how close or wide it should be, how you transition from scene to scene. Because if you do that wrong, it can be very disorienting. If you move from one screen where you're moving to the left and the next screen requires you to move to the right, that's incredibly disorienting to the player. So it took them a long time just to figure out where best to place the camera how to animate, how to move, how to switch screens. This all took a very long time. So they had some rooms, they had some objects, they had some enemies, they had some stuff, but they didn't really have a game coming together. And Manzetti, it turns out, I don't have a lot of detail on this, but there was definitely disagreement between Reynal and Manzetti on the way to kind of string this all together and create a story out of it, and it just wasn't working out. So at the beginning of 1992, they basically part ways with Manzetti and add another team member from Infogram named Hubert Chardot. Hubert Chardot came to the industry, just like uh, Sean Frey, Chardot came to the industry and the company in a kind of unusual way. He was actually a marketing guy and PR guy in the film business motion pictures. He was a film distributor for 20th Century Fox, and his territory was the southeast region of France. So he would take 20th Century Fox's movies that they decided they wanted to release in France. He would take them around to the movie theater operators and try to convince them to show his movies, and then he would help with the marketing and the PR surrounding the movies. Well, they went through a bit of downsizing and decided to close most of their European offices, including the one in Lyon, which is where he worked. Lyon, the second largest city in France, also being the home of Infogram. So he was out of a job, but he had a friend at Warner Brothers who knew Bruno Bonnell. Bonnell at the time was on the lookout for people who could be scriptwriters, because I think because they were doing so many of these comic book games comic book adaptions, adaptations, that, you know, you need someone who can do words. So he wasn't strictly a writer by training, certainly not a creative writer, but he had done writing as part of his marketing. He'd had to write blurbs about movies and that kind of thing. He'd always enjoyed that part of the job, and so he was like, okay, I need a new job. I can kind of write. I've been in the film business long enough that I've been exposed to a lot of (laughs) film writing. I'll give it a try. So he uh, sent a resume to Bruno, ended up submitting some samples, I think, after that, and uh, got hired on. He worked on a couple of projects there. Then once he uh, finished one game he was working on, Shadow of the Comet, which was a graphical adventure based on the uh, Call of Cthulhu license. More on that in a moment. He was kind of stuck with not much to do, and then another person at the company said, hey, I hear that they're working on this kind of cool thing on the fifth floor and that they need a writer. You might want to check them out. So Shardo did and ended up joining the Alone and the Dark team because they were just stuck. The game design wasn't coming together. Manzetti hadn't worked out. It's now early 1992. I don't know exactly when, but it's, it's early 1992. Reynolds has been working on this thing forever. Infogram is not in very great shape. 
And Moté, the head of development, uh, at least according to Chardot uh, in an interview he gave, was at this point kind of looking to just cut his losses, release whatever disaster they have at the moment, let it sink in the marketplace, and just kill it, never to think about it again. But bringing Chardot on is basically kind of the last chance to turn this into something real. Now, Chardot understands writing. He also very much understands horror. He is a huge, huge, huge H.P. Lovecraft fan. He even visited Providence once to go see H.P. Lovecraft sites, Providence, Rhode Island, where Lovecraft was from and where many of his stories are either based or derived from localities. He understood writing, he understood horror, but he did not understand game design because he was new to it. Yes, he'd done some writing already on a couple of games for Infogram, but he's still relatively new. And on Alone in the Dark, they don't just need a writer. They need a game designer because they need to figure out what the flow of the game is. The narrative is going to dictate the path through the house. The narrative is going to dictate where enemies are and why, what puzzles there are, all of this stuff. There's also going to be a lot of writing because Reynal knows that polygons don't have the kind of detail to have the scariness that he wants. Going back to his Giallo influences again in Dominic Argento, he's all about the creepy camera angles. He plans to take full advantage of the fact that you have to have fixed camera angles for every view in Alone in the Dark to have unsettling and crazy camera angles that unnerve the player and can inhibit them in encounters with monsters. Very similar to how Argento uses the camera with Wild Abandon to create suspense. He also knows, they haven't started on the music yet, but he also knows he's going to have creepy music to build the tension in the player, just as Giallo films and Argento films have very suspenseful music to ratchet up the tension. But the visceral nature of a Giallo, the way the blood, the gore, and the sexuality all intersect in a horrifying way, well, that can't be done with polygons. Even today, I don't think, even though we have graphics that are in many ways pretty close to photoreal, even today, I don't think you can really capture that kind of horror and gore. There are kinds of horror and disturbing imagery that you can capture in modern games. Certainly, some of the more recent Resident Evil games or Alan Wake games have some pretty shocking imagery in them. But not so much the gore. You know, you still can't really do a convincing uh, knife attack or chainsaw attack on a human being, <laughs> even in a modern computer game. We haven't crossed that yet. So he knew that the polygons were not going to capture any kind of horror. He wanted to build out the story through books that your character would find in the world, on bookshelves, in libraries, on the floor, whatever, that would have elements of the backstory in them as well as clues for solving some of the game's puzzles. So he was going to need a writer, but that writer was also going to need to be very in tune with the design of the game. And Chardot did not have that experience. So what they did when Chardot joined the team is they took three days. They literally just stayed at the office for three days. And they ran through the entire scenario. Reynald describes himself as basically serving as a game master or a dungeon master. He didn't have the game design fleshed out. Everybody worked on it together, but he was the one kind of organizing it all as the head of the team. 
They basically just on tabletop ran through kind of the entire game, figuring out what the rooms would be, what the monsters would be, what the puzzles would be, where stuff would be located, what the player's flow would be through the thing. Figured this all out in this three-day marathon session, which, as Chardot himself has said, is really when he learned how to be a game designer. Arguably, being a DM is like being a game designer. Oh, absolutely. You're creating a framework for your player to go through. You said he had some D&D influences and experience in the past, Mm -hmm. so it makes sense to go, all right, maybe we don't need to roll out or do every combat or everything like this, but let's just role play and explore and organically learn and develop and explore this world and see what works, what's fun, what's a good layout of things. Exactly. Do I want to start with us going into the foyer? Do I want to come in through the basement? Am I parachuting in from an airplane and hitting the attic? Am I a barbarian, (laughs) bravely crawling up the outside of a mansion, trying to be a thief, but somehow succeeding? Who knows? (laughs) Exactly. This is when they kind of sketched out the flow. I mean, they already knew it was going to be a house, and they knew that it was going to be an escape scenario, that you're going to end up trapped in there and you're going to have to escape. According to Chardot, in terms of the flow, he was personally inspired by the classic Hitchcock movie Psycho that we already talked about. In Psycho, the Bates house is kind of slowly revealed to us over the course of the movie, and kind of the upper levels in the attic are kind of more benign, speak more to Bates's childhood, whereas the truly horrifying stuff is happening in the basement. So kind of taking the same structure, now obviously Psycho's not a movie where you're exploring and having to escape the house, but taking the same structure in terms of the house becoming scarier and more threatening as you move from top to bottom, Chardot decided that they would start in the attic. That also seems to be a thing with Lovecraftian horror, where a lot of the dark evils Mm -hmm. are buried or deep underground, and remember to burn those books. Always burn the books. Exactly. And in fact, the other major influence on the design of this thing does come from Lovecraft. Now, Reynaud is not a big Lovecraft person, but like I said, Chardot is a humongous Lovecraft person. In addition to the house, the kind of plot that they come up with, not necessarily all in this session, but over the course of time, is that the owner of the house has died under mysterious circumstances, apparent suicide, and Two individuals, you can either play as a male or a female character, very progressive for the time, but I think also kind of hitting on all the various tropes of the horror films that Reynolds was very interested in. You played as one of two characters. Now, they're not a tag team. It's not like if you play one, the other's off doing their own thing. It's not like Resident Evil 2, where both your characters are running around. But you have a choice of viewing. One of the characters is the niece of the deceased, who is there because Uncle died and she's like in the will. So she's there. And the other is a private investigator, Edward Carnby, who is there because the deceased owns a very rare, expensive piano and he's been sent to locate it by a client. There's not too much difference between the two characters. The start of the scenario is a little different. And of course, they look different, but they play the same. They don't have differing abilities or whatnot. It's more a a cosmetic preference than anything else. Either way, though, you're exploring the house, you go up to the attic, and when you hit the attic, you get trapped, and you can no longer leave the house. 
That all plays out before you start the game. You don't actually freeform explore the house. The game starts with you in the attic after you've been trapped there. As you move through the house, avoiding and occasionally killing enemies, solving puzzles, and reading books for lore, you eventually discover that there were a group of pirates long, long ago, that there was this pirate that learned magic and sorcery, and there's curses, and he's trying to resurrect and all of this stuff, and you end up having to not just explore the house, but then go in the tunnels under the house and destroy the tomb of this ghost pirate in order to stop this whole thing from happening. Is this pirate one-eyed Willie? <laughs> he is not. As you say about uh, evils in Cthulhu often being underground, in Lovecraftian horror, I mean, often being underground, the inspiration for these underground catacombs and a sorceress or wizard-like figure within these underground catacombs, Chardot took basically entirely, and this is again by his own admission in an interview, I'm not speculating here, from the Lovecraft story The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which was written by Lovecraft in 1927, but only published in 1941 after his death. This involves this individual, Charles Dexter Ward, learning about an ancestor, Joseph Kerwin, and learning that he was a wizard and deciding to try to essentially learn some of this same magic stuff that his ancestor Learn. So he goes to his house in a village and discovers underground tunnels that he has to move through, and there's a plot to resurrect his ancestor and all of this. The plot of Alone in the Dark doesn't really take from the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but the entire idea of a wizard-like figure in underground catacombs under a house, that totally comes from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Are you sure it's not eternal darkness? <laughs> right. Not yet. Not yet. All of these games just really influence each other, and it always surprises me. Absolutely. You know, we've got a little bit of Giallo Cinema. We've got a little bit of Hitchcock. We've got a little bit of George Romero. And we have a little bit of Lovecraftian horror. And together, they form the basis for this game, Alone in the Dark. Somewhere in this process, and again, we don't know exactly where, but somewhere in this process, Infogram gets the Call of Cthulhu license from the company Chaosium. Call of Cthulhu being a role-playing game based on the works of Lovecraft. Through some weird shenanigans that we won't go into here, Lovecraft's works are actually essentially in the public domain. Even at this time, they shouldn't have been by the date they were written, but there was some weirdness. So Lovecraft's works are essentially in the public domain. That's part of the reason why there's so many things based on Lovecraftian horror and on Lovecraft is because it's public domain. Of course, Call of Cthulhu is more than just Lovecraftian horror. It's also a system, a role-playing system based around Lovecraftian horror, created, as we've talked about in past episodes, by Sandy Peterson, who later went on to be a, a video game designer at Microprose and id. We talk about him across our Microprose and id software episodes. Infogram, as part of their licensing thing, decides to license the Call of Cthulhu games. So they're making some Cthulhu games, and this horror game feels like it could potentially be somewhat Lovecraftian. So they basically ask Reynal, would you like to make this one of our licensed games with Chaosium? Reynal was like, eh, okay, fine, whatever. He he's not particularly a Lovecraft person. 
And he's definitely not a Call of Cthulhu person. Uh, you know, he had played RPGs. He had tried Call of Cthulhu a couple of times. He was aware of it. But he found the character sheet to be way too complex. And anyway, what he wanted to make was an adventure game, not an RPG. So he was like, oh, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. Chardot, of course, was more enthusiastic about Lovecraft, but he also was not a Call of Cthulhu player. They get some Lovecraftian monsters in the game as a result of this. There's a Chthonian in the game, down in the tunnels. There's some Night Gaunts and a couple of other things running around. Won't go into detail on what all of those are, but those are monsters that appear in Lovecraft stories. Like I said, the plot is, not the plot so much, but some of the organization is sort of taken from the case of Charles Dexter Ward's. There's some Lovecraftian elements in it, but at the end of the day, it's decided that it's not a good fit. The official story on this is that Call of Cthulhu is an RPG. Alone in the Dark is not an RPG. So Chaosium was like, this doesn't really fit our brand, so we don't really want it associated. That's the official story, and that's what Kleinol has said, but Chardot in his interview in a French book that was translated into English called Epopée, uh, Tales from French Game Developers, by an author named Thomas Ribot, says something very interesting in his interview, that after the game was done, one of his jobs, since he had some experience in marketing and PR, was to convince Chaosium not to take royalties on Alone in the Dark. I have to wonder if at some point, seeing how this game was coming together and how impressive it was looking, Bonell, who, as I said, the company was in kind of dire straits and he was trying desperately to go public at the time, I have to wonder if maybe they waged a campaign with Chaosium to convince them that the game didn't fit their brand, rather than Chaosium coming to them and saying, this game doesn't fit our brand, license denied. I wonder if Bonell didn't wage a campaign to be like, oh, well, you know, now that we've made this game, it doesn't really fit your brand, so I don't think you really want this to be associated. Why don't we make something else for you instead? I don't know that this is true. I'm kind of reading between the lines of Chardot's interview. He doesn't say that straight out. But I kind of have to wonder if there wasn't some of that going on on Bonell's side. You have said that he likes to not spend money, so that at least gives it some degree of credence. Exactly. On the box, I think it says something about it being inspired by Lovecraft, but it doesn't really have any Lovecraftian stuff other than a few enemies. It really isn't even inspired that much by Lovecraft, because we said Reynal did not use that as a frame of reference. Chardot did a little bit for his plot, but overall, it's really not Lovecraftian at all. Like you said, Lovecraft horror and the Lovecraft mythos is public domain even then. So exactly. just because they have some of those elements in there, they can just have the design look like whatever the Lovecraftian monster is and just call it Mr. Purpleface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The game comes together. One of the last hurdles of, of all things is faces. They've had these uh, polygonal characters running around for a very long time. Since September 1991, now we're getting around to September 1992, which is about when the game needs to go Gold Master, and these characters have no faces. Originally, what they were going to do, and what Didier Chanfray had planned to do, was they were going to use voxels to make these really expressive faces on top of these polygonal figures. 
but it kept getting pushed off and pushed off and pushed off, and nobody ever got around to it. So finally, they're to the point where the game needs to be going gold, and the main protagonist, the man and the woman, neither one of them has a face. People don't expect the graphics of a polygonal game at this time to be that impressive, but they do expect humans to have at least some semblance of a face. Eyes, maybe a nose, some sort of mouthing contrivance. Ears are optional. Exactly. So at the last moment, they just create polygonal faces on the characters. But uh, the downside of that is that even though the characters are very well animated overall, I mean, considering the time, I mean, you look at them now and it's like, what the heck's going on? But they really are well animated for the time. The faces are almost entirely static, virtually no expression, because they were added very last minute after animation was already locked. So they really couldn't do anything. The faces are just kind of goofily there, but that's okay. And one interesting anecdote about that is that, of course, they had to start hyping the game well before that. So they had to release screenshots to game magazines well before that. They couldn't have the characters be faceless in the promo materials, so they actually used Deluxe Paint to paint faces on the screenshots that they sent to the magazines, so the preview images don't have the real faces on them. We would call it today they've been photoshopped, but of course they didn't use Photoshop, they used Deluxe Paint. Neither here nor there, just a fun anecdote. So the game is finally finished at the end of 1992 and released. It is an overnight sensation. I think the primary reason for that is that Reino really did understand how to make a great horror game within the confines of the technology that he had. There were few key choices that he made that really upped the tension level, some of it taken from his favorite horror auteurs and uh, some of it taken from his own ideas. One of the things that he did is he wanted the player, and again, I think this comes from Argento a little bit, because I talked about how Argento likes having horrible things happen in settings that you don't expect them to as a way to keep the audience always on edge, right? One of the things that he decided to do was have a series of shocking events happen at the very beginning of the game to give you this kind of idea that you're never safe. So you start in the attic, and you have to figure out how to get out of the attic. You can't just leave it right away. After you're there for just a little bit, suddenly one of these giant chicken zombies bursts through the window and attacks you. I know what some of you are thinking. I remember playing a game where everything seems fine, and then suddenly an animal bursts through a window and attacks me. Bark, bark! Bark, 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 snarl, brain, bark. <laughs> exactly. So that famous jump scare in Resident Evil where the dogs crash through the window. Alone in the dark did it first. It's like that episode of South Park. Alone in the dark did it. Alone in the dark did it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to deal with that. Then suddenly a zombie pops out of a trap door. Not a trap door. And you have to deal with that. You have these jump scares right away in the very first room to kind of acclimate you to this idea that this place is not safe. Then, when you get out of the cellar and start walking down the hallway on the second floor, there is an unavoidable 
if you walk in that direction. And the way the map's set up, pretty much everyone's going to, there is an unavoidable spot where the floor gives way, you fall through a hole and instantly die. Game over. You know, it's right at the start of the game, so it's not like you've lost that much time at that point. But game over, just for walking down the hallway, a perfectly ordinary action, and there's no tell. There's not like a cracked board, or if you had read a secret message in the cellar, it would give you a hint that the floor was broken. It's not a slightly different shade of brown than the rest of the floor. There is nothing there that would ever lead you to expect the floor is going to give way and and you're going to die. He doesn't do that all through the game, because that would just be frustrating. Then we're back in Sierra Adventure Territory. Nobody wants to be back in Sierra Adventure Territory. I know I don't. But he does it here at the very beginning of the game for the same reason. It makes it so the player feels like he's never safe. The house is trying to kill me. The monsters are trying to kill me. Monsters could show up at any time and continue to do that. I mean, those aren't the only jump scares with monsters. There are constant times where you enter a room and a monster suddenly appears, or you're re-exiting a room and a monster appears, etc. Then having the environment kill you so quickly in a way that you don't even fathom is going to happen, he uses this to make it so that you don't feel safe for the entire rest of the game. Always on edge. Of course, another thing that he does that is definitely taken from the Giallos and from Argento is uses music to increase the tension, not only having very suspenseful music playing, but having specific monsters have a specific musical theme to them. Then, this is the cruel part, sometimes having one of those musical themes play even when the monster is nowhere around. So you get trained that music changes monster coming. Then they switch it up on you sometimes. Music plays, monster doesn't come. This is not happening. My television didn't just turn off. This isn't happening. The game isn't suddenly upside down. This isn't happening. I'm not (laughs) falling through the floor. This isn't happening! Yeah, it doesn't go full-on eternal darkness and mess with you in that kind of way, but it does use the music to kind of screw with your head just a little bit. Alone in the dark did it first. Yes. Another thing that he very much does is gives you a limited inventory. Again, a hallmark of survival horror games going forward. He doesn't do this because of memory limitations or anything like that. He does this because he specifically wants to make you think about what you carry with you. The game very rarely puts you in an unwinnable state. There are a couple of items, if they end up getting destroyed while you're carrying them, the game becomes unwinnable. There are very few points where the game becomes unwinnable due to items. Because the items that you don't take with you, they don't disappear. It's not like once you leave the room, they're gone, or there's a chance that monsters will come through and eliminate the items while you're gone. It's very hard, though not impossible, to end up in an unwinnable state because of your inventory. However, there are times where you have to think very carefully about what you're actually carrying with you. And if you end up not bringing something with you that you need to solve a particular puzzle or overcome a particular enemy, then you have to go back and fetch it again with all the nervous tension that comes as you're retracing your steps and spending longer in the mansion. Limited inventory as a way to enhance player tension, something that Resident Evil is very famous for. Alone in the Dark did it first. Definitely to decide whether or not you're carrying this rapier with you, the shotgun, 
or you want to have the little gems that make the bad guy go away. Exactly. There's a sword that you can get, a saber that you can get early in the game, that breaks after a couple of uses. Again, this is to instill tension. It's like, oh my gosh, even my weapons may not be reliable. Most of the weapons are reliable. The game in general, I mean, it can be challenging, but the game in general is not trying to be completely unfair. But it wants to set very early expectations that nothing is safe. And even if the game is not unfair to you most of the time, it wants you to know that it could choose to be unfair to you at any time. So watch your back. It pretty much puts you in a state of expectations and then have those expectations subverted which is a hallmark of horror, where you go, oh, we know how the zombies are acting. We know how the zombies are going to come and eat my face. That's fine. We can just put up a fence. What do you mean the zombies have some degree of intelligence and now are starting to roll a gas barrel down at me? Oh, why is that one coming at me with a torch? Oh, dear, that just blew up the fence. Mm -hmm. And now the horde of zombies is coming in. We're doomed. Press A. Press A! <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It's, it's exactly right. By doing all of this and by introducing more horror atmosphere that can't be accomplished through uh, the graphics, through text, through these written vignettes that give some of the history, you know, also does that. The other final thing that I want to mention on this point is sound. We talked about music, but I'm talking about other sounds. Sound effects, SFX. Exactly. Alone in the Dark came along at the perfect time. Because let's just say the only thing horrifying about PC sounds in the 1980s was how bad they sounded, not how scary they sounded. Go PC speaker. Exactly. And even in the later 80s, as you got FM frequency modulating synthesis, even then the sound was pretty primitive. But by the time Alone in the Dark had come out, the sound blaster had been becoming fairly established. And what this meant is they could do actual sampling, sound sampling of real noises. Every creak of the floor, every squeak of a door hinge, every scream of a monster sounded far more realistic. They didn't sound like perfectly realistic, like audio today, but they sounded far more realistic than the audio that PC owners were generally used to at the time. The echo of your footsteps. Yes. Presuming that you had a sound blaster and could figure out what the hell IRQ to set it to. Oh, God. The IRQ hells. <laughs> Which slot do I even put it in so that it works? What do you mean that for this game I have to swap my video and sound card around just because the programmers couldn't just decide where things were? Yes. The graphics were astounding for the time. They look primitive today, but truly were astounding for the time. No one on PC had controlled a largely fully articulated animated 3D character of that type before, and even very few people on, in other media had. The graphics were f fantastic for the time. The environment was truly scary. The story was fairly interesting and unfolded slowly over time, as, as a good horror story does. The gameplay was solid enough. One thing that definitely confused some people is because you get a gun very early on and because you can shoot and kill the monsters, people did sometimes tend to play it as an action game when it was really meant to be an adventure game. Because he did, just like Resident Evil as well, he did implement limited ammo. There's no way in heck you can kill everything with the ammo you're given in the game. 
similar to the early Resident Evils before in Resident Evil 4, they were like, ah, screw it, here's a rocket launcher, go have fun, kid. You can't just fight everything, but I think some people kind of got the impression that you were kind of supposed to. And in fact, it's interesting, Chardot says one thing that they found very early on is people loved blowing away the zombies with the rifle. There's a little game called Doom coming in just one year that is going to show that, yes, the public really does like vaguely 3D games, Doom not being completely 3D, vaguely 3D games where you blow away zombies with some kind of gun, preferably gun, comma, shot. That's an interesting thing, but really, it's, it is an adventure game, first and foremost. That's what he considered it. That's what he wanted to make. A lot of the monsters can be overcome through puzzle solving. The Night Gaunts, I believe it's the Night Gaunts, maybe other enemies, but I think it's the Night Gaunts. There are these mirrors that you can find, and you have to put these mirrors on these statues, and then that causes the Night Gaunts to vanish in a puff of smoke. There's a dining room that you have to go into that has five zombies in it, which is more zombies than most rooms have. The zombies in general are not that hard to kill, but five zombies in one room is a bit much. However, in the kitchen, you can find a pot of soup. If you get the pot of soup and then bring it to the dining room and set it out, the zombies go for the soup instead of for you. I guess it's brain soup. The game doesn't specify, but I'm just going to assume it's brain soup. I have to crack open the human to eat the brain, or I can eat the delicious, warm aroma of brain soup that is already there that the night human provided for me. If I eat the brain soup and not the human, maybe the human will bring me more brain soup. There we go. Maslow's hierarchy of needs in action. There's this knight, there's this enchanted suit of armor that basically massacres you, but you can find this really heavy statue, and if you throw the heavy statue at the knight, it shatters the armor, makes it all come apart. Most of the enemies in the game are designed where you can either avoid them, just run away, or there are specific puzzles you can solve to get by them. Like the window. You can push the heavy armoire in front of the window, and then Chicken Zombie doesn't come through the window. Exactly. And there's even a clue. I think it's a clue. It's, it's in the intro, so it's a clue you only get if you play the niece, not if you play the PI. But you even get a little hint that maybe you want to uh, push the armoire in front of the window. So, exactly. There's puzzles. And then, you know, it has Resident Evil-style puzzles, which are, you know, find the key that opens this door kind of puzzles like Resident Evil. But it also has environmental puzzles, generally simple ones, but that are more like an adventure game. For instance, there's one room where there's a cigarette in an ashtray. It turns out that the smoke that is wafting from the cigarette is very toxic, and it doesn't affect you right away. But if you stay in there too long and the room fills with smoke, it starts hurting you. Well, in another room, you can find a jug, and then you can fill it with water, and if you take your jug of water and pour it on the cigarette, that puts it out and saves you from that. There's another room where there are these ghosts on this ballroom floor. These ghosts are blocking your way to a necessary item. If you touch these ghosts, you die instantly, and there's no way to get to this item without touching the ghosts, but there's also a record player in the room. And if you find a record, there are several records in the game, but if you find the record that they want to dance to, which I think is like Dance of the Dead, har har, and put that on the record player, they start dancing and swirling around the room. Touching them is still fatal, so you have to navigate between them carefully. There's now a path, as long as you're careful, to go get that item you need because the ghosts are dancing. It really is more of an adventure game, and it's even more of an adventure game than a Resident Evil. I would say that the puzzles in Alone in the Dark aren't as complex as the most uh, challenging adventure games, 
but they are more complex than the puzzles in Resident Evil, for sure. Survival horror, even though it's kind of a combination of action, horror, and adventure, in its initial form of Alone in the Dark, really leaned more towards the adventure side than the action side. Mikami took it in a slightly different direction, I think, because his primary influence was Romero and Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, and of course, zombie movies got the action. Just kind of an interesting contrast there. It had solid horror, it had solid plot, it had breathtaking for the time graphics, uh, it had interesting adventure gameplay, and I think the other thing that made it a huge success is Reynal did something very clever with his system. One thing that could inhibit the uptake of some of the fanciest new games at this time was that they were built for the highest-end systems. Games like Wing Commander and Seventh Guest and Mist really needed a truly high-end PC to fully get anything out of them. You would think a game like Alone in the Dark would be the same, with its animated polygonal graphics. But Renault wanted this available for as wide array of systems as possible, from the most powerful office PCs all the way down to the PS1, which in this case is not an abbreviation for the PlayStation, but was actually IBM's home computer model at the time that in the base model only had 512 kilobytes of memory. So a clever thing that his animation program did is it was able, depending on the strength of the processor that was in use, it was able to choose frames to cut out of the animation that would obviously leave the game a little jerkier than if all the frames were being used, but kept in all of the important frames, the keyframes, if you will, to still make the animation look somewhat believable. So by having this ability to scale the frames being used depending on the power of the machine, it could actually run on even a PS1 with 512k of memory. That's pretty impressive and hard to do and something that was not done a lot during this time. Exactly. So it was playable on a wide array of machines. It was something people hadn't seen before. It appealed to people, and it just blew up. It sold over time like two and a half million copies. Not all in one year or anything, but over time, two and a half million copies, which was huge for a PC game at the time. It put Infogram on the map. They were able to go public. They had lots of money from it, and this began their rise to their very brief rise to dominance, followed by their spectacular fall that we talk about in our Infogram episodes. It ignited survival horror, even though not much came out immediately after it because a little game called Doom came along that everyone got obsessed with. There was kind of this interregnum after it came out where the Doom clones took over everything, but then Resident Evil came along, which was heavily inspired by Alone in the Dark. It really did birth what we consider survival horror today. I'm sure you can point to other games that came before it that had some of the elements of survival horror. You can always point to an earlier analog, just about. But this is the game that made people decide, yes, survival horror is a thing, and yes, this is something we like. And, of course, it provided a technique that was instrumental on the PlayStation to not just survival horror games like Resident Evil, but also RPGs like Final Fantasy VII using wireframes with bitmaps as uh, pre-rendered backgrounds, and then putting your 3D characters on top of that. For Reynaud, it was kind of bittersweet. 
First of all, the end of making the game just absolutely killed him. It was brutal. As you would expect with a game that is using such advanced technology, yet can also run on such a wide array of PC models, it was buggy as heck. There were so many bugs to squash. He was working 15-hour days by the end, just trying to get this thing done. On top of that, you remember how I said the artist Yael Baraz became his wife? Yep. Well, she also became pregnant, and she was due right about the time that they were finishing up Alone in the Dark. So uh, in one interview, I think he said something to the effect of, I was getting phone calls all the time, and it was a toss-up between whether it was the office calling about more bugs or the hospital calling (laughs) about his pregnant wife. Oh, dear. It was kind of brutal getting the thing done. And then to add insult to injury... Good old Bruno Bonell, who never wants any individual to be above Infogram itself in any kind of standing. When he saw the credits, which said, created by Frédéric Reynal, he said, no, 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 this was a team effort. We're not crediting any individuals on this game. Change that to created by Infogram, which he did. Then, as the game got all the critical acclaim and started winning awards, it won a very prestigious French award called the Milliador. Bonnell, as the head of Infogram, accepted the award, and as part of his acceptance speech, he said, according to Chardot, I thank everybody, my wife, my dog, and my hairdresser. Wow. Kind of trying to rub it in Reynolds' face a little bit. Infogram staff were already underpaid compared to other companies in the industry. You can sometimes get away with underpaying someone if you lavish them with praise, respect, and recognition. If you neither pay nor recognize a person who does a great thing, then you're in trouble. Just look at Activision and Atari, for instance, as we have many times in the past. Those wonderful creative people go get into that state where you need me more than I need you, and I'm going somewhere else where I'm appreciated. But he was still rather loyal. He was a loyal guy. But then the final straw was, of course, the game was a massive hit right out of the gate, like I said. So Bonell wanted a sequel right away, as soon as possible, Alone in the Dark 2. Reynolds was excited about this. He's like, great, there's so many more things I can do with the engine, and it'll be wonderful. And Bonell's like, no, 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 we don't have time for that. We need to ride this while it's hot. We need a sequel as soon as possible, so no engine changes. Just a new story with the old engine. No money, no recognition, not even the stimulating programming and intellectual challenge of being able to improve his own game. During the run-up to the release of Alone in the Dark, a journalist from one of the leading magazines there called Tilt came and interviewed the team, was completely blown away by what they were doing, and also had contacts with the music producer Paul DeSenville, who had started as part of his Delphine Records, a software publishing, game publishing subsidiary called Delphine Software. Delphine was on the lookout for new talent because one of their bigger creative talents, Eric Chahi, who had created Out of This World, had parted ways with them. The journalist worked as a middleman between DeSinville and Reynaud. Reynaud got a huge raise and creative freedom at his own subsidiary called Adeline. He took several of the Alone in the Dark people with him. 
most notably uh, Didier Chanfray and Yoh Baraz. Alone in the Dark 2 happened, and 3, and 4, and on and on and on, but poor Reynaud ended up having to walk away from his successful creation because of situations. So it ended up being much more of a coup for Infogram than for Reynaud. Though Reynaud still got something out of it, because he still got his own company, Adeline, and more money and everything because he had created it. So it's, it's not like it's a completely dark ending, but it is kind of sad that he ended up being one and done on his own franchise because of circumstances. And that's that. That's the story of uh, Alone in the Dark. So we will wish you good evening as we leave the darkness and go back into the light. Not alone, but together. We want to point out that this game had such wonderful influences that were adapted by so many other companies and many other games. Never forget that by playing D&D, you can create your own worlds, your own thing, and really, really get that gameplay down. Before we leave you tonight, what shall we be discussing next time on They Create Worlds? Well, I think we're going to do something that we almost never do on They Create Worlds, Jeffrey. What's that? We're going to go to the 21st century. Not the 21st and a half? No, we're not there yet. But yes, we are going to cover something from the 21st century that is entirely contained within the 21st century. Okay. I am talking about one of my personal favorite series, the Mass Effect Trilogy. Wait, that's a modern game. We don't cover modern games. Sure we do. We cover important games. Once we have enough context. They are old enough now. We're like 17 years from uh, the first Mass Effect almost at this point. That's right, Jeffrey. Feel old that enough has been written that we do have some context on them. And they're interesting because they arrived at a very key moment. There were a couple of different 3D kind of revolutions. Talking about one right here with Alone in the Dark. And then you kind of had the revolution at the end of the 90s where the polygonal figures started to actually look like people and such, even if the textures were still kind of low res. Mass Effect came at a time where we were moving beyond, hey, isn't it great that we have 3D graphics at all? And at a time where, like, instead of having these 3D graphics being just kind of standing there, kind of static, what if we are actually able to truly make games cinematic now? The Mass Effect trilogy was kind of at the beginning of this trying to get more cinematic, and some of the things they did were very groundbreaking. Some of the things they did were beyond their actual capabilities. They were more ambitious in some cases than they could execute on. But it really is an interesting story of a key moment in more modern video game uh, design history. There's been enough written about it now that I feel very comfortable in covering it. So we are going to take hopefully just two. I know, I know, but hopefully just two. I don't think there's enough for, for three episodes. There's not enough to do one per game, for instance. We are going to take hopefully just two episodes to uh, explore the Mass Effect trilogy. Okay, fine. We're out of the darkness. Now we just go into the dark ocean of space, only to be eaten by everything because we have to be cold. So, everyone get your spacesuits on for next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. 
Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. The Hitchcock theme is in the public domain. You can get it right off of archive.org if you want it. And we wish you a good evening. <laughs>